Hey, thank you for listening to the podcast of Palmetto Baptist Church. We pray that as you listen to the following message today, that it will encourage you to continue to connect, grow, and serve in your relationship with God and with others. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, turn in them to the Gospel of Mark chapter 14. Gospel of Mark chapter 14. We'll read verses 1 through 11. The title of this message is Kindness in a Context of Cruelty. Kindness in a Context of Cruelty. Verse 1 says, Now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him, but not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. While he was in Bethany reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you and you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. So truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over kindness in a context of cruelty. This passage is another one of Mark's sandwiches. Mark's gospel contains 10 different sandwiches where a story is cut in two, a second story is inserted in between the two parts of the first story, and then they're all sandwiched together. So that you have part one of story one, then it's interrupted with story two, and then after story two concludes, part two of story one comes back together and they complement each other. They interpret each other. One story helps to understand the other story, and this text is one of those ten sandwiches. In the top bun of the sandwich, Mark describes some conspirators and their secret plan to arrest and kill Jesus. The latter part of verse 1 tells us what is happening in that upper, that top bun. He says that the chief priest and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and to kill him. That's the top bun. The bottom bun of this sandwich begins with verse 10 and goes through verse 11. And the bottom bun is one that exposes a mole among the group of Jesus' disciples. The mole, of course, is Judas Iscariot. And Judas takes a bribe from the religious leaders 
in exchange for betraying Jesus. Those verses tell us Judas Iscariot went to the chief priest to betray Jesus to them and they were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. So here's Judas. He's willing to betray Jesus. So you have this top bun that shows the religious leaders looking for a way to trap Jesus and kill him. And then the bottom bun is is their opportunity that arises through Judas, one of Jesus' own 12 disciples, handpicked by Jesus to betray him. Some say that that Judas was just uh, kind of a devil incarnate, that that he was going to betray Jesus no matter what because in truth he hated Jesus. That that may have been true. I'm not so sure. Others say that that it wasn't that Judas hated Jesus, but, but Judas was a militant disciple. He believed that the Messiah would come into the world and would lead a military revolt against Roman occupation. And as Jesus' ministry crept along, Judas got a little, un, uh, little impatient with uh, Jesus, they say, and he, he betrayed Jesus to try to hurry him up, to try to push his hand. Whatever the case was, Judas agreed to take money in exchange for handing Jesus over to the religious leaders. So you have the top bun and the bottom bun. But the bulk of this passage is devoted to the middle of this sandwich. Verses uh, 3 through 9 are the middle of this sandwich. And in it, Mark contrasts the cruelty of Jesus' opponents, the religious leaders in Judas, with an unnamed woman's extravagant act of kindness. Now set within this story is, set within this story of betrayal is this, this story of this woman. Her name is not given. She goes unnamed throughout this passage. She owns a bottle of perfume. Now I'm a guy so I wear cologne not perfume but I guess cologne and perfume can kind of cost the same thing. It's not unusual to find, you know, four or five ounces of a cologne or perfume that may set you back anywhere from $50 to $150. I mean, it almost makes you just want to go stinking. Really, it does. Costs so much. But this was not that. The passage teaches us that this bottle of perfume that this woman had, it was, it was a part perfume and part ointment, it was, it was so expensive to purchase that it would take more than an average person's annual salary to buy this bottle of perfume. So I want you to understand, you don't get this bottle of perfume at Dollar General. You won't find it uh, in, in the, the Walmart special clearance aisle. It's not going to be there. The only place that you might be able to find this kind of perfume in America might be something like a Neiman Marcus, one of those high-level places that, that most of us, myself included, only hear about, but we never go in it because it's kind of crazy going in there. This was a very expensive bottle of perfume. Now, she may have inherited this stuff from uh, a wealthy relative who passed away, or she may have, have always dreamed of owning this kind of perfume. 
And so she, she set aside some of her savings to the point where she had more than a year's worth of savings, and then she devoted all of that to the purpose, to the purchase of this perfume. We don't know exactly how she got it, but we know she had it, and we know that it was expensive, and we know that rather than use it on herself or rather than sell it for a better price, she comes into the house of this man whose name is Simon. He's a leper. She comes into his house and she breaks the bottle of perfume and she pours it over the top of Jesus' head. Now that's very difficult for us to understand. We'd look at it and it would be really messy and it would be really smelly and it would take like, I don't know, three or four days worth of shampooing to get the smell out of your, your hair, that kind of thing. But for her, and for her it, was, it was a way of showing Jesus how much he meant to her. The very best thing she owned, the most expensive thing she owned, she gave it to Jesus, pouring over his head. And there were people there who complained. Uh, Luke doesn't tell us who they were, but he says in verse 4, some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? This particular episode is recorded in some way in all four of the Gospels. In one of the Gospels, it is Judas himself who complains, wonders why this wasn't sold so that the money could have been used in their benevolent ministry. And so this woman's act of kindness and service stands in stark contrast to the cruelty that was exhibited on the part of the religious leaders and Judas. It's interesting, and I think it's very relevant for our day, because just as Jesus lived in a culture of cruelty, I believe that you and I live also in a culture of cruelty. Now, I don't mean to say that, uh, I don't mean by that to be saying that nobody is ever kind or there's not any good going on in the world. There's plenty of it. There really is. We need to hear more of it. But we live, by and large, in a culture of cruelty. You don't have to watch 10 minutes of a news program to see cruel things being done in our world, cruel things being said by people about other people. We live in a context of cruelty and injustice and what the world needs, I think more than anything else from the body of Christ, is they need to see a stark contrast to that cruelty by the kindness that we show when we allow Christ to work through us. But that's very difficult for us. It's difficult for us because we are human beings, and even though we who've been saved have Christ living in us, there is a constant battle within us between Christ having his way versus our sinful nature having its way, and it is in that sinful nature that we too, who are uh, children of the Lord, we too can exhibit the same cruelty that we see in our world. It's ironic in Mark's gospel, I think, it's ironic to see who really, gets, who really gets Jesus and who really doesn't get Jesus. I mean, you'd think that those who, who were the strongest in their religious faith in Jesus' time would have understood Jesus. They never understood him. 
You'd think that his disciples, who spent the better part of three and a half years with him, following him, listening to him, seeing him perform miracles, seeing him cast out demons, seeing him heal people, that they would have got it. But, but over and over again in Mark's gospel, the disciples failed to grasp what Jesus was doing and who Jesus was. When you think about the folks who really did get what Jesus was doing, there's this demon-possessed man who lived in a cemetery, homeless in a cemetery, and when Jesus exorcised the demon from this man, the man started proclaiming the good news of Jesus and wanted to follow Jesus. He's a very unlikely character to follow Jesus. In Mark chapter 10, there's a blind man named Bartimaeus who after Jesus heals him, he follows him the rest of the way to Jerusalem. If you've ever studied closely Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you know that in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, most of the activity is in the northern part of Palestine in Galilee. And Jesus only makes one trip from Galilee down to Jerusalem in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And that last, that one and only trip to Jerusalem is the one where he's crucified and resurrected. It's in John's gospel that we find Jesus making at least three, maybe four trips to Jerusalem. If all we had were Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he would only, we'd come away thinking that Jesus only made one trip to Jerusalem and that his ministry was no more than one year long. And yet, in Matthew's gospel, the people who were most unlikely to understand Jesus, understood him. There are two places in Mark's gospel where, where someone says, I know who you are, you're, you're the son of the most high. Two, two places, and it, and it was never by one of the disciples, and it was never by one of the religious leaders. The first time, it was by a demon in, in, that was possessing this man who lived in the cemetery. The demon, actually there are more than one of them, spoke out and says, we know who you are. You're the son of the most high stay away from us. They recognized him for who he was. And the only other person is at the end of Mark's gospel, there's a Roman centurion who is not a believer in Christ, a Roman centurion at the place where Jesus is crucified. And that centurion says, truly, this man must be the son of God. Isn't that interesting? A demon and an unbelieving Roman soldier are the only two people in Mark's gospel who recognize Jesus and confess that he is who he really was. The disciples missed it. The religious leaders missed it. And this text in Mark 14 really highlights how the most unlikely people get him, whereas the most likely people just didn't get him. Judas didn't get him. The religious leaders didn't. But this unnamed woman who breaks open this very expensive bottle of perfume, she gets Jesus. I mentioned that this uh, story, or one like it, a scene like this where someone opens up a bottle of perfume and either anoints Jesus' head or his feet or his head and his feet with it. This is in all four of the Gospels. In Matthew and Mark, the event occurs in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper. Luke locates it in the house of a Pharisee. In the Gospel of John, it takes place in Bethany also, but in the house of Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. And it is Mary, Lazarus's sister, who actually breaks open the, uh, the perfume and anoints Jesus' feet with it. 
however many times it occurred, the one thing that really pops out to me is the kindness this woman showed to Jesus in contrast to the cruelty that was being shown against him by the people who should have known better. And if there's one thing that I want us to get from this text and from this message, it's simply this. It it is that we, like Jesus, need to be kinder. We need to be the kindness in our world. You and I are the body of Christ. And just like Jesus, when he was here in his physical body, was a person who showed kindness to people and who highlighted the kindness of others like this unnamed woman, just as he did that, we need to emulate his kindness to others. So how can we be kinder and therefore more like Jesus? Let me suggest three things we can do. There's a lot we could do. But let me just suggest three things we can do to be more kind and more like, therefore, Jesus. Number one, if we want to be kinder in our world of cruelty, the first thing we need to do is to check our attitudes. Check your attitude. Check my attitude. Because you see, whatever words come out of our mouths and whatever actions uh, are, 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 are performed with our hands and feet, they are the outflow of what is in us and our attitudes are what are in us. I don't have to tell you that there's a lot of anger in our world. There's a lot of bitterness in our world. There's a lot of agitation in our world. There's a lot of pain in our world. And, and a lot of times that anger and that bitterness and that pain get the best of us. And, and our words and our actions flow out of an attitude of bitterness and anger. See it all over the place in our country. We need to check Our attitudes, are we angry and bitter or are we compassionate and caring? Ask yourself this question. When I lash out at someone, when I speak towards someone, when I act in an unkind way to someone, what does that say about my attitude, about what is in me? This woman had an attitude of love and care and compassion. She didn't care who saw her anoint Jesus. She didn't care what, what it cost her to, to, to lose this perfume on the head of Jesus. It didn't matter. She, they could criticize her. It didn't matter to her because she had a heart full of love and kindness and compassion. That was her attitude. We can check our attitude. Second, we need to check our words. I realize that we have, we have put a premium on on being able to just tell it like it is. And there are times when telling it like it is is certainly in order. But we have gotten to the place where telling it like it is, even if it's not sounding like Jesus, is what we're going to do because it makes us feel stronger, it makes us feel better, and and it it ought to cause us great shame. I would suggest that before we let out any words... We stop and we ask these questions. Do I know for certain that what I'm about to say is the truth? Do I know it for sure? I'm amazed at how many people 
start sharing stuff, whether it's on Facebook or email or, or in, the, in the snail mail or, or talking out just in the grapefruit, uh, you know, on the grapevine. I, I'm amazed at how many people just go to telling stuff and they, they have not stopped to see if what they're saying is the truth. Listen, if you're thinking about saying something, first, research and see if it's true. If you, can, if you can find out that what you're about to say is definitely true, then maybe okay. But if you cannot determine whether or not it's true, don't say it. And especially before you say it, find out if it's true. And if it's not true, by all means, don't say it. And let me suggest this to you too. And, and I've been in the same boat. If you ever find yourself in a position where something that you have sent in email or something that you posted on Facebook or something you've said to a group of people turns out not to be true, by all means, go back to those same people through email, through text, and through personal conversation and let them know that you were wrong. Did y'all hear that? Now I realize, I told the first service this, I realize that we're not that much of an amen in church, but there ought to be one somewhere. <laughs> ought to be one. Is it true? Do you know for sure that it's true? Second, is what you're saying kind? Is it kind? Third, is what you're wanting to say absolutely necessary? And third, does what you're thinking about saying, does what I'm thinking about saying promote peace and reconciliation? You know what Jesus was about? Here's what Jesus was about in a nutshell. He came for this purpose, to take God on one hand and humanity on the other and, get this, reconcile them. And it wasn't that God had a problem. The problem was humanity. We were the ones who were at fault. We were the ones who, in sin, who were, were in sin, and Jesus came to reconcile us. But not only did he come to reconcile us with God, he came to reconcile us with each other. Jesus was in the peace and reconciliation business. And so, before I say something, just off the cuff, which unfortunately too many times I'm, I've been guilty of, even hurtful things, but I need to stop and ask myself, is what I'm about to say, is, does it promote peace? Does it promote reconciliation? Is it kind? Is it necessary? Is it true? So we need to check our attitudes. We need to check our words. And third, we need to check our tone. Does your tone come across as angry and bitter? Or, here's a great question, do we take the same tone with others that we want them to take with us? You ever heard the golden rule? Do unto others as you'd have them do to you. Do, do, I, do I give the same tone, do I use the same tone with other people that I want them to use toward me? Because if I use the same tone toward them that I want them to use toward me, I think that I'm sensible enough that I want to be kind toward them because I want them to be kind toward me. Does our tone come across as kind? And does it come across as genuine? Yeah, I love you. I, I love you too. That sound genuine? Hello? No. I want to tell you something. I love you. 
What is our tone? Folks, we live in a world of cruelty. We need more kindness. In fact, let me just leave you with this one sentence that sums up for me what this text is about, what this message is about. Following Jesus means living a life that offers kindness in a world that is characterized by cruelty. Now, before the sun goes down today, everybody in this room will have the opportunity to either be kind to someone or cruel to someone. I'm talking about before this day's over. So which is it going to be for you? Let's pray. Our Father, you have been nothing but kind to us. It's not that you don't tell us the truth. And it's not that there aren't times when you don't come at us, I mean, just straightforward with the truth. But you're always kind. That's the way you were even with the religious leaders. They tried to trick you and you knew they were trying to trip you up and yet you always offered them kindness. And Lord, we are your body in this world. We are the body of Christ. So help us in this post-truth world to be truthful and to be kind and to be compassionate. Whether we get a name for it or not, Lord, we may end up like the unnamed woman who, who broke open this expensive perfume. Lord, so be it. But let us overflow with a kindness that amazes people. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.